From Bloomberg Law, this is Uncommon Law. I'm Adam Allington. Jury selection in the Derek Chauvin case wrapped up Tuesday, March 23rd. Originally, Hennepin County District Judge Peter Cahill had requested 14 jurors, including two alternates, but the judge increased that number to 15 last Friday. Of the 15 jurors selected, three are white men, three are black men, one's a black woman, six are white women, and two are multiracial women, according to the court. George Floyd's death last May at the hands of Minneapolis police officers has made Minnesota ground zero for the debate over police reform, and specifically policies involving the use of force. Last August, Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry announced policy changes that would restrict the use of allowable force by police. Good afternoon. Nothing is more damaging to police-community relations than the excessive or unnecessary use of force against the people that officers are sworn to protect, especially when that force is deadly. These changes are being made with the overriding goal strictly limiting force and deadly force to circumstances where it is necessary to keep people safe. Fry noted that the practices and procedures of years past had deepened the rift between police and the communities they're charged with protecting and serving. And while no single act could erase that history overnight, he says rethinking use of force policies would be a key component in preventing future tragedies going forward. The new policy includes major revisions to several sections governing when deadly force is authorized, requirements and higher thresholds for the use of all types of force, restrictions on specific actions and specific behaviors, and new definitions and principles that will be guiding the use of force going forward. Bloomberg Law Midwest correspondent Stephen Joyce has been covering some of these specific changes that have taken place in Minnesota. So Stephen, Minnesota is, I think, one of 18 states that have enacted new laws that restrict or prohibit certain police actions. When did these changes take place? So in St. Paul, the capital of Minnesota, state legislatures began discussing legislation within days of George Floyd's death on May 25th, and in July convened a special session of the state legislature, which only took eight days to pass a comprehensive policing practices bill that the Minnesota governor, Tim Walls, a Democrat, signed into law on July 23rd. And what did the new law actually do or change? Specifically, the law, which is one of the more comprehensive in the country prohibits chokeholds, requires investigations upon police-involved deaths. Uh, It makes a unit that investigates police uh, misconduct more independent. It restricts uh, the use of deadly force. It requires officers to intervene if they see their partners are uh, exhibiting some type of excessive force uh, and creates the state database with details on alleged officer misconduct. Um, There are other states who have acted uh, as well. Uh, Colorado has a very uh, comprehensive bill. California has done the same. Uh, Minnesota clearly is one of the states that has enacted uh, the most, some of the most comprehensive reforms. uh, And maybe that's a symbol of what happened in Minneapolis in May of last year. 
And Stephen, what do we know about how effective any of these reforms have actually been? Has there been any pushback or criticism? Well, it's a good question. The answer is you really can't evaluate it at this point because what happened was a lot of the bills were passed, but because they uh, required police departments to sort of uh, change the way they were going to perform their duties, uh, a lot of the laws didn't uh, come into a force right away. And for instance, the law in Minnesota comes into effect in stages. Certain sections of the law come into effect immediately, and then some in 2021, and then uh, some actually in 2022 and 2023. So it's not really known. We can't really see sort of a, a, a very tangent picture of what has changed. Uh, and there are some academics who say some of these uh, changes really don't get to some of the core issues that would fundamentally and lastingly change policing. And what about the use of force specifically? Would any of these changes have made a difference in the case of Philando Castile or George Floyd? So starting on July 24th, 2020, the law banned the use of chokeholds and then details with words precisely what a chokehold is. The law also alters the legal language spelling out when an officer is permitted to use deadly force. Before, officers could use deadly force in the event of an apparent threat of death or great bodily harm. But now, as of March 1st, the word apparent has been replaced with a new test, whereby an officer has to actually be able to articulate the threat with specificity and no, the threat of great bodily harm is likely to occur without the use of the force. The key distinction here is that an officer can't merely suspect that an alleged perpetrator has, say, a knife or a handgun. They have to be able to explain they actually saw the suspect with a weapon. Other changes direct police officers to exercise special care when interacting with individuals with physical, mental health, or intellectual disabilities. Those changes also entered into force March 1st, about six months after the bill was signed into law to allow police departments time to train officers. Stephen Joyce is a Midwest correspondent for Bloomberg Law. Stephen, thanks for your reporting, and I'm sure we'll have you back on the pod again soon. I hope so. But not everyone is in favor of the raft of reforms that have come down from the state legislature. At a virtual meeting of Minnesota's black police chiefs earlier this month, St. Cloud Chief Blair Anderson said he thought many of the reforms were overly vague and could make it more difficult for police officers to do their job. Well, let let me start out by by saying what unfortunately I've seen too much of, uh, and that is our elected officials uh, haphazardly passing and proposing legislation that I don't believe is substantive or sustainable. They they are responding to the hue and cry. And and we all know here that there needs some be there needs to be some 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 other issues explored. Some police chiefs said they also weren't being given sufficient time to implement the new reporting and training requirements. Still, others, including Minneapolis Police Chief Medaria Arredondo, say that regardless of the difficulties, the death of George Floyd was a turning point for the law enforcement community. We can never go back 
to how we used to operate in the days before. And I'm very proud of the, the men and women of the Minneapolis Police Department. But I also think there's an opportunity here like no other that, that we can look at every corner of this organization and see how can we get better. Um, we, are, we are needed. We are going to continue to be needed to be those trusted and legitimate guardians in our communities. And so, uh, but our communities are crying out. They, they really want to make sure that we have their best interests at heart. Like most cities, Minneapolis has had limited experience holding police accountable for misconduct. Out of 2,600 complaints filed since 2012, only 12 resulted in an officer being disciplined. The most severe penalty in this case was a 40-hour suspension. That's according to Communities United Against Police Brutality, a Twin Cities advocacy group. But others in the legal community say the Chauvin trial has the potential to dramatically change ideas of police accountability going forward. The most important thing is how the nation views this case, and in particular, the conversation that surrounds the case with regards to whether or not the case will make a difference in how police interact with people and whether or not the case will make a difference in particular in how police interact with black people in this country and other people of color. Arthur Ago is a former public defender and the director of the Criminal Justice Project at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law. He says while convicting Derek Chauvin of the murder of George Floyd would bring some degree of closure to the country, he says there are still many other things riding on the case. I think equally important to the vast majority of people in the country is to know that this won't happen again. Not, not um, you know, let me put it this way. As, as important to them that there is some sort of liability um, that, is, that is assigned to Derek Chauvin is the idea that police departments are paying attention and police officers are paying attention and that people start to feel safer around the police and in particular black people and people of color start to feel safer. What they are looking for is that this case will show that police officers who engage in brutality, who, who kill citizens for no reason, will face consequences and that that would result in changes in their own lives. And that's, I'm, I'm looking for that and I'm looking for that conversation. On the one hand, you say that consequences are part of the equation in changing notions of police accountability, but does all of that go out the window if the jury finds Derek Chauvin not guilty? I'm hopeful that a lot of the reforms will happen either way. I'm hopeful that the very fact that uh, Chauvin was arrested, the fact that he was indicted, and the fact that he is on trial alone will result in continued conversations about, about how to fix and how to repair policing and police relationships with um, communities of color in the country. I'm not sure that we need to have a guilty uh, verdict. For many people, there is a desire to have, a, understandable, obviously, desire to have a guilty verdict. But I'm not sure that one is necessary for the conversations to continue. What's important is that those conversations continue and that the, that the change occurs. And so on a certain level, you know, I, 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 I think that the result of the case might influence those conversations. I am hopeful, though, that those conversations will continue regardless. Clearly, with Democrats now in control of both Congress and the White House, reform advocates see an opportunity to make change. 
Earlier this month, the House passed the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act on a largely party-line vote. President Biden himself has tweeted that he hopes to be able to sign a new landmark police reform bill. So how much enthusiasm do you think exists among lawmakers to take up something as politically divisive as police reform? I would, I would like to impress upon your listeners that it's, it's really important that people keep in mind what, um, what started in 2020 in terms of the demonstrations and the conversations, and that, that, that they, should not be, they should not overlook and forget some of the issues that different people that, that do work in this field raised last year. There is a tendency, I think, with the change in administration to think that things have, all, has, have gotten better. But one example that I wanted to bring up is that there was a, a big call to abolish or at least substantially limit qualified immunity last year. Sort of silently, the, um, the Department of Justice filed something in the United States Supreme Court recently supporting the continued use of qualified immunity in a, in a specific case that uh, has the potential to be reviewed by the Supreme Court. And so that, that shows me two things. Number one is that change really <laughs> is proving to be as incremental as it always has been. And then number two, the fact that nobody really responded to that shows that people are perhaps forgetting some of the very important issues that were raised by many people who've done, who did this work last year and who continue to do this work. And I'm, I'm very hopeful and, and I would really like to impress upon people not to forget those issues and not to stop talking about some of the changes that need to happen. Arthur Ago is the director of the Criminal Justice Project at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Arthur, thanks for speaking with me. Thank you very much, Adam. I appreciate it as well. And that's where we'll be leaving the discussion for today. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Marissa Horn and Stephen Joyce. Josh Block is the executive editor for Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.